Welcome to our discussion segment on the Palace of Versailles. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And today we're talking about the glories of France, the Chateau of Versailles. Let's get started. Hey, John. How's it going? It's going good. How are you doing, man? Good. Good. So uh, this is obviously an interesting topic. When we think about the Palace of Versailles, we automatically think of opulence. Even yes. Even people who haven't been there or even seen a picture of it, you hear the word palace in Versailles, you think this is something that's going to be somewhat over the top, and it does not fail to deliver. Very true. <laughs> Un- unlike Versailles, which is a town here in Indiana, I'm glad you're pronouncing it correctly. Versailles. 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 Is how you pronounce it. <laughs> Very important that we yes. say the right. Do not say Versailles when you go to Versailles. No. <laughs> No, it's not, no, no, no. not the best thing. So in hearing the episode, I couldn't help but wonder about the French royal family in terms of mm-hmm. what it was like, what they were like, what the atmosphere around them was like. For our listeners, can you paint a picture of the French royal family at the time that Versailles was being built? Sure. I mean, very briefly, Louis XIV was the king of France uh, who built Versailles. He was the longest reigning king of France. He was known as the Sun King. And in, in our in kind of our modern culture, we see pictures of uh, Louis XIV, and we'll probably have some up on the uh, the website for this because you really have to get a visual. He looks, to our mind, almost effeminate because he has this long curly hair and he wears the leggings and the tights. That's very common to that time. But again, context being so important to history, he was actually a very you know, very strong man. He was considered very handsome for the uh, for the time. He loved his family. He loved his children. But the experience of the Fronde early on in his life made him fear for his own safety and for the safety of his family. That's why he moved the royal court out of Paris and to Versailles. So it's a family dynamic. It's obviously very different from the family dynamics of today. But you did have a loving father and a loving mother and uh, and children at the core of the French royal family. Thank you. And that actually feeds into my next question. You talked about the the fond? The fronde. The fronde. Yes. Thank you. The fronde. You talk about the fronde. And I in, in hearing the episode, I couldn't help but wonder about the location of the palace and how the palace is so over the top in terms of how we would <laughs> define that. Did the experience that he had with the fronde influence the remote location of Versailles and the size of Versailles in terms of separating him from the nobles and the and people who were who were who were common? Like, was it more of just like I so want to separate myself from all of that that I'm going to go here and build something like this? Well, it, it wasn't separating himself specifically from the commoners. It was separating himself from the Parisian mob because that was. His enemy during the Fronde, which again, you know, he was a, he was only a child, so he's not exactly waging that war, but his ministers are. Um, he wants to get his family and his court out of Paris because Paris, up until about 1870, was a city run by by the mob, not organized crime mob, but just anyone who was angry. They would throw up barricades around neighborhoods and they would try to overthrow the government, and that was just the nature of Parisian life at the time. So he wanted to get out of uh, get out of Paris, and it's I think about twenty miles, uh, which at a time before cars and planes, that's that's a, a good distance. Now, in terms of getting away from the nobles, he actually didn't want to get away from the nobles. He wanted the nobles around him and under his control. That's why he built the chateau so large. I mean, yeah. it's got I think several thousand apartments, right? Uh, in the uh, in the grounds, it, it seemed like though, like one of the purposes of Versailles was to sort of not to pun anything, but to dress them down. He wanted them in one place where he could control them Absolutely. outside yes. of the, the Parisian influences that might turn them against him or cause cause. Yes, more, that's more certainly problem. true. Okay. It was more about the remoteness of Versailles relative to the uh, to the time was about getting the the king away from the mob and away uh, getting okay. the king and the court away from the mob. 
Okay. That was the main purpose for why he chose Versailles. Plus, it's a beautiful location. Yeah. And there was a, his father had, a, I think it was his father or his grandfather, had a hunting lodge there. So he was used to going there as a child. It was familiar. So let's just bulldoze the original one or expand it into the largest palace at the time that the world had ever seen. Yeah. So having gone to the palace several times, one of the things that you notice when you walk out in back of the palace are the gardens. Yes. Gardens, as you said, are they're expansive. They're incredible. They're unbelievable. Yeah. And um, that's actually, if I were to think about my favorite part, that's at the top of the list because mm-hmm. it's just it's just so wonderful. As far as you can see, there's, there's green. Why were the gardens so important to him? Why was it so important for him to expand them to continually add more? Mm-hmm. Why? A couple of reasons. First, garden parties were very common during the 1700s. If you were part of the royalty, you wanted to have a great deal of land so that you could entertain your guests, not just within the cramped rooms. Because remember, there's no air conditioning in the uh, uh, in the 1700s. We tend to think of these images of the uh, the 1700s as these very grand ballrooms and these beautiful events. What no one tells you is the stench, because you pack 300, 400 people into the Hall of Mirrors. There's no such really no no air conditioning. It's hot. It's humid. People are sweating. I can only imagine how much that would stink. So they have the parties outside. You want to have the gardens there so you can impress people and so you can say I have the biggest in the land. But it's also a defensive measure because at the edge of the gardens, presumably you have a fence or you have a wall, and that is just another barrier between you and the mob. Plus, it gives you space for more palaces, you know, like the Grand Trianon, the Petit Trianon, and all those other smaller buildings mm-hmm. on the grounds. So, gardens were a show of wealth in Very terms much of so. Okay, so it's not just he didn't want to just everyone understood that he was king. Everyone un- understood that he believed himself to be God ordained as king, but yes. he wanted to prove it, so to speak, by not just having this massive palace, but also having these expansive gardens. Not to prove it, to show it off, because oh, okay. under the divine right, you don't need to prove that you're king. True, but True. to show it off. Yeah. And remember, the budget of France was taken up, or a large portion of it was taken up by the operations at Versailles. By the end of Louis' uh, reign, it was costing, I think, uh, one in ten francs that the government was spending for the entire country was spent on the court at Versailles. It's one of the reasons why France was so in debt when we get into the late 1700s, the, the revolution that happened there that brought down the Bourbon monarchy, brought Napoleon to power and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be like Donald Trump spending, oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 billion on himself and on operations of, of the White House. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. So in the episode, you talk about an example of how the Hall of Mirrors was used. And we were talking about the nobles earlier. And I loved how you <laughs> went into, just as an example, how Louis got dressed yes. in the morning. And it seemed like there was a sense of mind games being played here, that the nobles would be holding the articles of clothing, and as you said, their stature would be determined by which article they actually handed to him. Yes. Um, when someone was given a position in the long progression of him getting dressed, mm-hmm. like if I'm, if I'm handing him his stockings... Just one. One stocking. Just one yes. stocking. Why have one person hand you two stockings when you have two people hand you one stocking? Ah, interesting. Yeah. Of course. Oh, yes. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So how do I get from the stocking dude... <laughs> to the shirt dude. How, yeah. Like, how do I move up and stand? It's all about being the most subservient and being the most useful to the king. Louis XIV was famous for the various wars that he fought. He fought, I believe, three wars. Earlier I said in the 1700s, his reign was mainly in the 1600s. I just want to clarify that. He fought, I think, three wars against uh, the Dutch, against some of the German states, against basically anyone he could. And so... 
the counts and the nobles are also soldiers. They're leaders of the uh, uh, of various units of the army. And so if your unit, whether you were there or not, if your unit won a battle, you would be promoted up the line from yeah, from stocking guy to shirt guy to hat guy or whatever it was. Because hats were the, were the symbol of status back then, the bigger the hat. Imagine a massive hat on someone's head. It was any kind of service that you could do for the monarch. That's how you got promoted in that time. Okay. So somebody who would win a battle, a general or mm-hmm. something, he would still be expected to hand the king his clothes? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Because the, the general's not divinely given the right to rule uh, by back God. back to that, yes. Yeah, we're back to divine right. Back to that. And we're back to absolute power. I mean, Louis is the embodiment of absolute royal authority, not just in France, but in the pages of European history during the age of absolute monarchs. He is the best example. So um, can you give our listeners uh, just kind of an idea of what it was like to be King Louis for one day? Sure. I mean, it would it would. Honestly, it depends. Are we talking about wartime King Louis or peacetime King Louis? Because their days were very different. In peacetime, he would rise. Pretty sure he was a, he was an early riser. He would have morning prayers in his private chapel off his bedroom. He would take the two hour period to get dressed. He would have meetings with his uh, with his ministers <laughs> to ensure that the country was running smoothly. He would see his children very briefly uh, because he was. He was so busy that the children were, were of course, raised by caregivers and by, uh, to an extent, their mother. But he would only see his kids for, for maybe 15, 20 minutes. They would be presented to him. And then he would, in the afternoons and in the evenings, he would uh, have various diplomatic functions, ceremonial functions, maybe a knighting, maybe maybe a garden party. And then he would retire fairly early. Okay. So, I mean, and then in war, of course, he's he might actually be out on campaign with the army. He did take the field a couple times. And if not, he's meeting with his generals and with his, with his admirals trying to plan out these campaigns. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Louis, uh, not directly tied to Versailles, but just an interesting anecdote, he believed that the key to French victory in any war was food. And it was. I mean, you have to be able to feed your, feed your army. So anytime he went to war or anytime someone went to war against him, the first thing he would do is he would conquer the Netherlands. Even if the Netherlands had no role in this war, he would just because okay. the Netherlands had so much food that he could exploit to feed his army so that the people didn't have to sacrifice. There was no rationing or anything like that. Somebody declares war on him, bam, invade the Netherlands, conquer it. <laughs> okay. It's one of the reasons why there's this historic enmity between the Belgians, the Dutch, and the French. They don't really trust each other. Even down to the First and Second World Wars, there's this historic idea of we don't really want any French troops coming into our country because for 50 years, every time someone would declare war on France, Napoleon, or not Napoleon, um, Louis would just come in and smack us around and take all of our stuff. <laughs> Interesting. I feel bad for them. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Well, on the palace itself, we've talked about its opulence, talked about how it came to be. As I was hearing our episode, one of the things that, that came to my mind is like, why did Bonaparte not live there? Because you would think that there's certain aspects of it that would match his ego. Like, what, what, what were some of the driving factors? It's actually fairly simple. Um, Versailles was ransacked earlier in the revolution, and so it was not fit for, uh, for the emperor to live in. Okay. Plus, he did not necessarily want to be, he was more of a, uh, I mean, he was an absolute monarch in the style of Louis XIV, but he didn't want to be associated with the Bourbon monarchy, and Versailles very much was, so he lived either at the Tuileries in Paris, or he lived at the Grand Trianon on the grounds of Versailles, but he would not live in the palace and risk, oh, we got another, we got another, uh, Bourbon, we gotta take, yeah. take him out like we took out Louis XVI. Okay. 
So uh, let's talk about Otto von Bismarck for a moment. Him using the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles itself once Germany came into Paris uh, conquered France. Not Germany, the Prussians. There was Prussian. no Germany okay. until until that moment okay. in the in the Hall of Mirrors. But yes, okay. So um, in terms of that, it, it seems like starting from Louis's dressing process to Bismarck to the Treaty of Versailles to all this, like the Hall of Mirrors seemed to have carried this theme of dressing down people like determining <laughs> that that's a good point yeah like there's this ongoing thing because bismarck they occupied versailles they mm-hmm. used the hall of mirrors and then invited some f- people who were french there oh, as yeah. ge- not necessarily as guests but even like we're inviting you to a place that's ours mm-hmm. it was like he was rubbing salt in oh absolutely room. okay yeah so and he's like is have you seen that theme like do, do you agree as you think through history i agree like, with you I, i've not i've not made the connection of it being a dressing down uh kind of a venue but it, it's absolutely true i mean you've got repeated well two humiliations one of france and then one of germany in the span of about 50 60 years uh, from the uh, from the proclamation of the German Empire and then the humiliation of the German Empire at the end of World War One with the Treaty of Versailles. So yeah, that's that's a, that's an interesting way to put it. And on that note, was the Treaty of Versailles when the French drafted that when they not just the French, right, 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 like like yeah. but when they added their part in it and they yes. wanted to sign it in the Hall of Mirrors. Was that kind of a payback? Oh, absolutely it was. <laughs> was that like- I mean, they opened the negotiations on January, 9, uh, January 18th, 1919, the exact anniversary of the proclamation, oh, same calendar day in the year. <laughs> Serious trolling. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, wow. it, was, it was all about the imagery of this great empire that was this, this arrogant militaristic empire that had been forged in war in 1870 has now been humbled by an even greater collection of powers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a little bit over more than 50 years later. Okay. So yeah, it's all about imagery yeah. with the French. It often is. And that's not a criticism. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when, when you think of the palace and you, and you've obviously been there many, many, many times, what's your favorite part of it? As, as and speaking from in terms yeah. of a traveler, someone, um, if you, you were going to tell somebody, Hey, if this is your first time at Versailles, Hall of Mirrors. I mean, okay. you, you can't, as, as annoying as it can be in the moment of there are five million tourists, it seems like, it packed into the Hall of Mirrors, the ambiance actually lends itself to remembering what actually happened there because people are chattering in multiple languages. You can, you get a sense of just this, this almost chaos of, of speech. And as I said in the podcast, you know, I've had students just kind of close their eyes and imagine, okay, this is what it was like when you heard the uh, the Allies announce the Treaty of Versailles and, and summon the German representatives and say, this is what you're going to sign. You don't have a choice. Or earlier in history, the galas and the festivals and the and the balls that were played or that were um, that were performed for Louis the 14th, 15th and 16th. It was not an empty room. It was it was a room filled with people, filled with voices, again, chattering in many languages. So I love the Hall of Mirrors. Beyond that, the Gallery of, of Battles is really is really interesting because I'm a military historian by training, so I enjoy any of that. And then the gardens are just great to kind of walk in. Yeah, I would say the gardens were like top top three for me. Too. Yeah, it's just like it's just amazing how yeah. expansive they are. There's a story that I would like you to tell our uh, our, our audience <laughs> I know from uh, from uh, I believe it was your first trip. Yeah, to, first time to at the Palace Versailles, of Versailles. Yeah, 
I, I opened the podcast kind of describing an evening at Versailles and the sun going down, and I had this story in mind. So I'll let you uh, let you tell that story. Yeah, it's it's actually really funny. Um, so my first time in France, uh, I before going there, I learned some French because I didn't want to be that American that didn't care to learn the language a little bit. So I've been practicing both before the trip and during the trip. And we're past We had just left the palace and we had actually heard about a fountain show that was going to go on. And the fountain shows there are, are wonderful. There's lights and there's fountains. Like it's just beautiful. So we were going to take all of our students there and, um, we didn't know what time it started or how to get there. The palace itself has a lot of gates. So you, you don't go through the main gate for everything. Sometimes go through side gates. We needed to know that information. So, um, we pass a security guard outside of the palace. And we're, as a group, passing by, and John was going to go and ask him. He's like, you know what? I got this. Total, like, 100% confidence. I walk up to him, and I have the French words in my mind of how to ask him about the fountain show. What what time does it begin, and what entrance should we use? And instead of using, or instead of saying, or asking him the question in French, I walked up to him. I don't know if this was a misfire in my brain. It had to be. I, I would say yes. Yeah. So <laughs> within earshot of the group, unfortunately, um, I, uh, I walked up to the security guard. And instead of using the French that I had learned, I used a French accent a, to a ask. bad, a Monty Python-esque <laughs> French accent. I used a French accent to ask him in English, uh, where is the, how do you say, uh, fountain show? <laughs> I said it and I realized what I did and I couldn't ask him the second part of the question because I was, I could feel the blood rushing to my face and I could hear the howling cries of laughter from the group behind I am, me. I am doubled over, bent double, laughing, crying, the kids yeah. were laughing. So not only did I not accomplish my objective of being that, that moron American who didn't care to learn the, the French language, but I managed to insult him by doing a Monty Python French accent. Uh, but he responded uh, politely in English. It's like, like with a perfect English. Perfect thing. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's at seven o'clock. You're going to want to go through this gate over here. It's like, I was like, thank you very much. I answered him in English and I walked back. And it's like one of those times in your life where you don't say anything for the next half hour because there's nothing to say. So uh, we ended up not going to it. So it was all for naught. Yeah. But um, it was. I don't remember why we didn't. It was. was, it, uh, it, was it was too late. We no, were too tired. It was actually really like elegant. People were showing oh, up. Oh, that's right. We were like. In, in like tuxedos yeah, and things like, like that. Yeah. We didn't know it was that kind of function. Yeah. So um, we, we did not go to it. But that, that stands out as a story. <laughs> yes. we, we will always, always remember. So moving on from that, moving on. Oh, what a great story. Um, what is, in your view, the most significant event which has taken place at the Palace of Versailles? Uh, Payback time. Okay. Um, my historian brain is crunching numbers here. I would probably have to say it's construction because... If you don't have Versailles or a or a, a monstrous palace similar to that under the authority of someone like Louis XIV who believes that all money is his and he can do what he wants, if you don't have that, you don't have the palace half a century later almost bankrupting France being a huge catalyst to the French Revolution. And if there's no French Revolution, if Fran or if the French Revolution had proceeded without 
the explosion of violence and the spreading of these ideas, uh, particularly nationalism, all across Europe, you change the entire course of European and of world history. Mm. No French Revolution means the 19th century is completely different. No Germany, no, and thus no First World War, no Second World War, and it goes on. It, it spirals from there. So, I mean, some, some historians would probably say the Treaty of Versailles, or they would say the Proclamation of the German Empire. But I think if you're talking big picture impact in history... It's got to be the fact that the palace existed at Interesting. All. Interesting. Okay. Probably not what you were expecting. It was not. <laughs> I, I was, like, expecting Treaty of Versailles yeah. or something else. Interesting. That's why I'm a historian and you are not. <laughs> so you so you don't think that, that those things would have taken place without, without the palace? It's hard to be counterfactual when it comes to history. I mean, there, there probably still – there certainly could have been continent-wide wars after that. But I think – in history, you don't want to say that one thing had to automatically lead to another, but it would it would have created a very different ideological climate okay. in Europe. Again, the, the revolution probably would have happened, but it wouldn't have been quite as visceral against the king if the king had been living in the manner, say, of the British monarchs. Where, yeah, they live royally, certainly, but it's not this walled-off chateau out uh, out far from Paris and this incredible opulence and this point of spending so much money that you're taking food from the mouths of the people okay. in order to pay for the king's third foie gras for dinner. Gotcha. Maybe he could make do with two, and the money saved there could feed 5,000 people. Right. Interesting. Yes. Yes, it is. Thank you for joining our discussion of the glories of France, the Chateau of Versailles. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. See you next week.